All right, so just as a way of review, just again, kind of keep uh, reminding ourselves of what First John is about. So why did, why did John write the, the letter first of First John? What was the reason that he wrote it again? He was warning them against false teachers and building them up in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of this twofold purpose. He's warning them of these false teachers, kind of exposing the false teaching, um, but he's also affirming them that of their faith in Christ. So we're going to look specifically at part of the reason that he wrote it in this passage today about the false teachers. That's what we're going to focus on today. But yeah, he's exposing the lies of the false teachers by also affirming them. So if you look at the First John 5, um, he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing so that they would know that they have eternal life. But then we're going to see um, the purpose statement, like another purpose statement in our passage today, where he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So again, he wants them to know of their faith in Christ, but also warn them of this false teaching. So for those of you here last week, what did we talk about last week in the, uh, the middle section of chapter 2? Yeah, yeah, that was a helpful summary statement. The first section is talking about this command. It's not a new command, but an old commandment. But in another sense, it is new because Christ has shown us how it is fulfilled and how it is lived out, which is a command to love one another, to love our brothers, to care for them. That's what true Christians do. They walk in love. They care for one another. And then he has that little poetic section where he reminds them of true things about themselves. He reminds them that their sins are forgiven, he reminds them that they know the Father, and he reminds them that they are strong, that they've overcome the evil one. And then that last little paragraph, right before our paragraph today, or our section today, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. He gives them this warning to not love the world. Don't love the things in this world. Two reasons, because the things of this world are not from the Father, and the things of this world are passing away. So he gives them this warning, which will fit perfectly with our passage today. Um, the next part of John 2. But before we actually get into John, I actually want us to go to Acts. Acts chapter 20, just for a second. Kind of just like an intro for our passage today. So let's just turn to Acts chapter 20. And I'll have someone read a section for that section of that for us. And the reason I want us to start here is I want us to see that the passage that we're looking at today is not a unique thing in 1st John. It's not a unique thing in the New Testament. It's very common. So this is this Acts chapter 20, the context here is Paul's on his third missionary journey. He's getting ready to leave Ephesus. He spent a long time with the, the Ephesians. He loves them. He cares for them. He spent time teaching them. He's getting ready to leave them and he wants to give them this final word of encouragement. So can someone read? We're just going to look at part of it. Can someone read in Acts chapter 20? Verses 28 through 32. Could someone read verses 28 through 32? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build up, build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Alright, so yeah, just a reminder, yeah, he's getting ready to leave, say goodbye probably forever to the Ephesian elders, but he gives them this, this final warning. What does he tell them? What's this warning that he gives them in these, these like five verses? Yeah. Yeah. He tells the, the pastors, hey, pay careful attention. Why? Because of false teachers. And where, where do they come from? Yeah. So there's some that are coming from out, and there's some that are coming from among you. And just a reminder that First John, the, con- the context of where that is happening is either Ephesus or the Asia Minor area. So Ephesus is in Asia Minor. Now, it's two different authors, Paul and John, but I think it's helpful for us to see that Paul's warning them before he says goodbye to them. One of his final warnings is, beware of false teachers. And specifically, be aware of them that will come from among you. There will be false teaching that happens even in the church. He says, uh, there will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, speaking twisted things. They're twisting the truth. They're seeking to draw away disciples. So John, he, after he leaves Jerusalem, he'll spend a lot of time in Ephesus, which is where he's at when he writes this, and then he'll eventually get exiled to the island of Patmos. But I want us to see that this is a, this is a big problem that all the New Testament authors are addressing, this false teaching. And it's not just an Ephesus problem, but it's a fallen world problem happens all over the world. So we should not be surprised, but we should be on guard. So if you look at your your handout, the main idea for today will be be on guard against false teaching by abiding in the truth. Be on guard against false teaching by abiding in the truth. So you can go ahead and turn to 1 John, where we'll spend most of our time, 1 John chapter 2. We'll flip around a little bit, but Spend our time in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. So you'll see the outline that I have written on there is the false teachers in the first two verses, battling the false teachers in the next six verses, and then the last two, warning against the false teachers. So could someone just read that whole passage for us, just to begin, verses 18 through 27. Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, excuse me, 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you, as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true, it is no lie, just as it is taught by the man. Thanks, son. So you can already see the theme that's here that's emerging. He's talking about these false teachers, this false teaching. It says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's warning them. But he's also giving them ways to battle against the false teaching. And he's reminding them of their salvation that's safe in Christ. So first point, the false teachers. Uh, in verse 18, it says, Children, is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So what are some of the things that he repeats here just in this verse 18? What are some things he repeats right here? It's the last hour. Yeah, last hour. And what else does he repeat? There's one other thing. Antichrist. Antichrist. So that's what we're going to look at first in this point says the last hour. He wants them to know that it's the last hour. And he want, he's talking to them about the Antichrist. So first, the last hour. So obviously he's not talking about a literal hour. If you look at verse 17, right before this, he says, and the world is passing away along with his desires. So he's talking about the world that's passing away. So what John is saying is that we're in the final days. This is a common theme throughout the whole Bible. Especially in the Old Testament prophets, they're often talking about the last days, the latter days, or in that day, so this coming day. And then the New Testament talks about it often as well. So let's look at a couple examples. Can someone turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 18? And someone else turn to Hebrews 1. Who's got the Acts 2? Yeah. Can you read it? Acts 2, 17 through 18. 17 through 18? Yeah, 17 and 18. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So right here in the book of Acts, he's quoting Joel. He's saying, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. That's what God said. In the last days, I will pour my spirit on my people. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we know that's already happened, right? Next time the Pentecost happens. Peter right here is addressing that these people are speaking and everybody's confused what's going on. He's saying, no, this was promised long ago. Then the last days, God would pour out his spirit. So just a little note to take from here is the last days have come. The Holy Spirit has come. And then who got, who's got the Hebrews 1 passage? You read it. Uh, one, two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So here again, we see it's the last days. And it comes with the, the coming of the first, uh, the first coming of Christ. 
That's when the last days have begun, or began. Now that was 2,000 years ago that John wrote this, almost 2,000 years ago that, that John wrote this verse. Jesus hasn't returned yet, so it might feel like it's not the last days. But I think we should be reminded here that we are living in this age that is the last days. And how do we know that the last days, like how does it end? When do the last days end? What's like the marker of that? What's the climax of the, the last days? The return of Christ. Yes, the return of Christ. So we know that the last days will have ended when Christ returns. So there's a temptation, I think, for us to think that we're not actually living in the last days. It's easy for us to not live with this, this mindset, this perspective. I think it's easy for us to get caught up in all the things that we have going on in our lives. We can get busy, we got work, our families. Those are all good things, but we can easily lose focus that we are living in the last days. Christ is going to return soon. We should be eager for that. We should remember that this place is not our ultimate home. We are waiting for Christ to return. And what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? In this last days, what are we supposed to be doing as we wait for Christ to come? Yeah, share the gospel. What was it? Jesus commissioned to us to make disciples of all nations. That's what we do as we wait for the coming of Christ. And how does John know that it's the last days? What is he saying? In verse 18. Antichrists have come. Yeah, he says this is how, I, how we know that it's the last days because antichrists have come. So what does he mean when he talks about antichrists? Well, so John's actually the only one who uses this word in the New Testament, but I want us to look at each instance, in each instance where he uses this word so that we can just understand who these antichrists are. So I'll just read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Could someone read verses 22 and 23 of our passage? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Alright, so what are some observations from verse 18 and 19, or verses 18, 19, yeah, and verses uh, 22 and 23? What are some observations that we can make about these Antichrists? No matter how basic it is, what are some things that you notice? There's one and there's many. Yeah, great. Verse 18, it says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, it's singular, but now many have come. So there's a singular and a plural. What are some other observations? Antichrists are liars and those who deny Jesus as the Christ. Yeah, so they're liars, that's how they describe. And we see a little bit of their doctrine, which we'll look in detail in a little bit. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny there's something about Jesus that they're denying, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son, and therefore they're also denying the Father. What else? What are some other observations from these two passages? Or two sections of verses? They go out from among you. Yeah. In verse 19, yeah. 
They were a part of the church, and then they've left. So they left the church. It's very similar to what Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. That would kind of imply that he's talking more about people. He's not, he's not talking so much about people who just aren't Christians, who just say, no, yeah, none of that's true. He's talking about people who are perverting the gospel by twisting it into something else. Yeah. That's a great observation, yeah. It's not just talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who are twisting the truth and they're teaching it. Any other observations from these verses? He denies the Father as well, not just Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, good. So that's another part of their doctrine. We'll look at that, look at that in a second. Another observation is that they're here now in the time of John's day. These many antichrists are here. So he says that there's an Antichrist coming, that's what they've heard, but there's many of them that are here now. Alright, let's look over at uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Can someone read that? Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So what are some observations from these couple of verses? There is a spirit of the Antichrist. Yeah, there's a spirit of the Antichrist. What else? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it says a spirit of the antichrist. It's, in a sense, it's a marker of the one who is to come, who's called the antichrist. It's deliberate false teaching. What else do we notice? In the it's possible to discern what the spirit of the antichrist is. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's really good. What else does he say about their teaching? That Jesus is from God. Yeah. He denies that Jesus is from God and he's come in the flesh. So they're denying the incarnation. It's really important for us to understand their false teaching. And they're also um, at the end of verse 3, you've heard um, was coming is now in, in the world already. So these false teachers are in the world, they're all throughout the world. All right, let's look at, um, go to 2 John, the book of 2 John, in verse 7, if someone could read that. So again, these are all the, the verses that mention these antichrists. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So how are they described here in this verse? Yeah, deceivers. So they've been called liars, now deceivers. And what does he say about their doctrine again? Yeah. Those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. So they're teaching that Christ has not come in the flesh. 
<clears throat> so just as a summary, you can go back to our passage for today. Just a summary, kind of all that material, the things that we've observed. These are people who are called antichrists. They're in John's day. They're not the antichrist, the one who is to come, who's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. It's not the, the one in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 that Jesus talks about. But they have the spirit of the antichrist. So they're forerunners of the one who is to come at the end of the last days. Also, they oppose Christ, right? Their teaching is false doctrine about Christ. So when, when it says antichrist, that word, it could mean that they're pretending to be Christ, or it could mean that they're opposing Christ. And here what it's talking about is that they're opposing Christ. They're not pretending to be him, but they're opposing him. They're here now. They're called liars, deceivers. They have bad doctrine. And they're still in our world today, deceiving people. And while they take a human form, there's a spiritual force that's behind them. It's Satan working and influencing through them. So this is what he's talking about, the Antichrist here. It's these forerunners of the one who is to come. They're teaching false doctrine. All right, let's look at verse 19 again. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You get a little confusing because it sounds like he's repeating the same thing in a sense, but what is he saying in here in verse 19? Yeah, so they left it. They were a part of it. They were part of this church, this community. They've left. And, and their leaving demonstrates that they were never really a part of it. So in one sense, they were a part of the church, but then they left to show that they were never really truly a part of this church. He's saying that their falling away shows that they never really were Christians. This is really important for us to understand. Um, look at, look at the, the, part, the conditional statement that he has where he says, if this, then this is true in verse 19. He says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John's giving us this principle that if they were really, truly Christians, they never would have left. They would have continued on in the faith. They wouldn't have gone to this false doctrine. Now, this is really important because it's, it's a doctrine that we, we hold to in theology. What is this doctrine often called? Perseverance. Yeah, the perseverance of the saints. So he's saying... Um, their going out makes it clear that they are not Christians. So, in other words, true Christians do not fall away. If someone falls away, then they never really were truly Christian. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. True Christians persevere to the end. I wanna, let's look at a couple other places where the New Testament talks about this doctrine. Could someone go to Philippians 1.6 and someone else to John chapter 10? Philippians 1 6 and then John chapter 10. Alright, who's got the Philippians passage? For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God began the work, 
He says you will also complete the work. What's this work that he's talking about here? Yeah, he's going to complete the work of salvation. He began it in justification. He's going to complete the sanctification. All right, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Someone read that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What does this verse teach us? Yeah, they will not go astray. What is even what is the language it even uses? Sheep. Yeah, sheep. They won't be snatched out. Yeah. So for those who are believers, they are Christ's sheep. They are sheep of God, and it says that God will not let anyone snatch them out of His hands. So therefore, those who are believers will never fall away. They will not be pulled away. They won't be like these false teachers that are mentioned in 1 John chapter 2. John Stott says this, He who stands firm to the end will be saved, not because salvation is the reward of endurance, but because endurance is the hallmark of the saved. Future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. So persevering to the end does not earn salvation, but it's a mark of a true Christian. This is a really sweet doctrine, but it's a very serious one. For those of us who are Christians, we can have confidence that God will keep us to the end. We will not fall away. But at the same time, we're called to persevere. We must rely on God's strength, and we shouldn't give up. We must persevere. But this doctrine also helps us see in our passage right here that just because someone has made a profession does not mean that they are truly saved. Just because someone looked like a Christian at some point doesn't mean that they're truly saved. So it's most likely that in this church that people saw these false teachers before they've left the church and they thought they were Christians. They professed Christ. They looked like Christians. But as time went on, it became clear that they weren't really truly Christians. They had different teachings about Jesus. I'm sure many of us can think of someone that we know who used to call themselves a Christian but he's fallen away. And this doctrine and these verses, they teach us that they didn't lose their salvation. Sadly, they never really truly were Christians. This also has implications for how we think about the local church, right? So in one sense, the church is invisible, right? You can't just necessarily see someone like, that's a Christian. People don't have like a little E above their head that says elect or a C that says that they're Christian, right? They're invisible. But that's what the local church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a visible manifestation of the church. And we want our visible local church to look as much as possible like the invisible church, those who are truly believers. Now, ultimately, God is the only one who knows those who are truly his. But church membership is doing our best, our best knowledge to, from our best knowledge to say, I think this person's a Christian. I think this person's a Christian. And then church discipline is saying, to the best of our knowledge, this person doesn't look like a Christian. They're not living like one. Now, this doesn't mean we should just be suspicious of every believer, like, are they actually a Christian? You know, that's not what he's calling us to do. 
But he's just helping us to be aware that just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean that they are. True Christians persevere to the end. All right, are there any questions or comments or applications from this passage? Yeah. Did Jesus ever like, talk about the Antichrist too? Like in his own words? Yeah. So he didn't use that word necessarily, but so he'll talk about there's one who's coming. And he talks about these false teachers, the ones who maybe say that they're Christian. Like even on the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say that you'll know them by their fruit. Those who will say that they knew him, but they didn't truly know him. Good. Can you distinguish between maybe, uh, you mentioned church discipline and those that are among us. Can you distinguish between maybe some of those and false teachers? Yeah. What would be kind of maybe a difference? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so when we do church discipline, it's because someone is living in unrepentant sin. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a false teacher, but they are, they are showing themselves to not look like a Christian. Versus false teachers are explicitly teaching a false doctrine. Now, we might discipline because of false teaching, but, yeah, church discipline is just saying this person's living in unrepentant sin. They don't look like a Christian. And so we do that to love them and say, we don't think you're actually living like a Christian. Um, but also just to keep the church pure. We want the church to look like what is really the church. Yeah. Any other comments, questions, or applications? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it could be it could be both. Someone could be doing right. But yes, that's a helpful way of distinguishing. Yeah. Good. Um, in verse twenty seven, when you say it's anointing, does that mean just like the spirit marking you saving you? Yeah, that is but we'll get to it in just a second. But yeah, you're right. Anything else on these couple of verses at the beginning? All right, let's look at point number two. So battling against the false teachers. Could someone read again verses for us verses 20 through 25? We're going to talk about that anointing. 20 through 25. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. All right, so he starts off, but you have been anointed. So he's already contrasting these false teachers, these antichrists, with the people that he's writing to, the Christians. He says, but you're not like them. You've been anointed by the Holy One. So when he says anointing, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, um, you've been anointed by the Holy One. So it comes from Christ. Christ anoints us with the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You've been marked by the Holy Spirit. I'll say you've been sealed with it in the book of Ephesians. But you're different from the false teachers because you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. So throughout the New Testament, whenever it talks about an anointing, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And what is the 
anointing of the Holy Spirit do? What is true of them because they've been anointed by the Holy One? No truth. Yeah. So they have, they have knowledge. They know the truth. All right, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. So because you've been anointed, you have knowledge of Christ. You know the truth. He's comforting his readers. You're not like these false teachers. You've been anointed. You have the truth. You know it. So he's doing two things. He's affirming them that they are safe in Christ. They are in the truth, but he's also warning them about the false teachers. So he's encouraging them, but he's also helping them to fight and remain in the truth. He's reminding them, you've been anointed. You're not going to fall away. Let's look a little bit at their teaching in verses 22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So here's their teaching. First it says they deny that Jesus is the Christ. So what does the word Christ mean? Yeah, anointed one. So Christ is not his, his last name, but it means the anointed one. It's referring to the Old Testament um, Messiah, the one who's promised from long ago who will come and save his people, who will be anointed by God to save his people. So if you notice, John's doing a little bit of play on words when you kind of understand what the words mean. In the Greek, he's doing a little play on words because Antichrist, just like it does in English, in Greek, they look very similar. It's just the anti in front of it. So, and then he says, but you've been anointed by the anointed one. So it's just a little fun play on words that he's using right there. But I don't think when he's saying that they've denied that Jesus is the Christ, he's just saying that like, they're like the Jewish um, unbelievers who would still believe in God, but they just don't think Jesus is the Christ. I don't think he's just doing that here. I think it's something deeper. So what else does it say that they deny? Yeah, deny the Father and the Son. And as we saw in other places, it says they deny the incarnation, that Jesus came in the flesh. So I think what he's, he's showing us about their false doctrine is that they hold to this Jesus that he's not the Messiah, God's Son who came in the flesh. That's what they're teaching, that Jesus is not the Messiah, God's Son who came in the flesh. So just as like a... A general question before we look about why this is a dangerous teaching. Just more general, more broad before that. Why does it matter what we teach? Why is right teaching important? Just in general. Right teaching translates to right living. Yeah. And the same of wrong teaching. It only leads to wrong living. Yeah. The, The things that we teach will impact the way that we live. If it's good teaching, it should impact us that we live rightly. If it's false doctrine, it'll impact the way that we live in a negative way. That's really good. Any other? Yeah. False teaching sends people to hell. Yeah. So there's an earthly sense in where it affects us, and there's an eternal sense that affects us. False teaching sends people to hell. That's why it's so important. Also talks about in Hebrews uh, five and. Hebrews 5 and 6 talking about apostasy. They just talk about the elementary teachings and doctrines and how 
it is actually how God grows us in maturity and sanctifies us um, by getting that pure milk and, and growing as we become children into adults. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this right teaching, it grows us. It helps us become more mature. So um, he just calls them, he calls them liars, the Antichrist are liars. I'm going to read this passage from John chapter 8. So in his gospel, he writes, in verses 44 and 45, he says, this is what Jesus is talking, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's talking about, Jesus talking about Satan right here is the father of lies. This false teaching comes from Satan. He's seeking to deceive people. So those who are following in this teaching of lies are children of Satan. It's demonic teaching. And as Ben just said a second ago, it sends people to hell. That's why it's so important that we have right teaching. It has eternal consequences. So what we teach... And our classes, um, our equipping hour classes is very important. What is preached on Sunday mornings is very important. If we're not careful, false teaching can lead to hell. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Sure. Last week we, we were talking about, the pastor before this, about how you can deny something with your life that you say with your mouth. Is that what's in view here, or is this more about what they're saying? Yeah, I think this is more of what they're saying. And do you think the passage last week and the passage this week are about the same group of people? So that their living is bad and their teaching is bad? Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's, it's both. I think false teachers who are teaching this, like they're saying false things, that's going to reflect in the way they live as well. Yeah. Now there may be some who are confessing true things, but who are just living like falsely. They don't live like a Christian. So that's, that's also true, but I think these false teachers are also living lives that do not reflect um, true teaching. So why is this doctrine of Christ, the true teaching of Christ, that he is the Messiah, he is God's son who has come in the flesh, why is this important? So it's more specifically this doctrine of Christ, why is that important? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is the only way to salvation is through Christ, right? So if we get this wrong, we're not really Christians. We don't really know him. Jesus said, yeah, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So first, you're, if you go against this, you're going against what Jesus has said, which is already, that's serious. But it's also just like, you're not headed the way to salvation. Mark, even, even in this book, like the beginning, the intro that John gives, you know, in the first chapter, and I think at the end of this passage that we're in today, yeah. Jesus is referred to as the word of life, as eternal life. And so it's clear that life is found in him, and outside of him there is no life. And yeah. so just like, even John's giving us that picture... Um, of 
you know, diversions from the truth actually don't get us to the one place where life actually is. Yeah, that's a great point. And even just let's maybe some like examples of false teaching, these false religions that are promising a way to God, but if it doesn't happen through Christ, I mean, it's like what we said earlier, it sends people to hell. There is no life found in anything else outside of Christ. And this is one of the problems that was happening with the Pharisees, right? When Jesus is having conversations with them, they get really upset when Jesus says that they don't really know God. But they don't really know him because they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He's the long-awaited promised one that he sent from the Father and said they hate him and want to kill him. So it proves that they don't really know God, the Father. All right, in verses 24 and 25, it says, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So what is, what is one of the strategies that John is giving us to fight against this false teaching? What is one of the strategies that he's giving us right here against battling or fighting this false teaching? Yeah, he says, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. So what is it that they've abided in from the beginning, or the message that they've heard from the beginning that they're supposed to abide in? Yeah, the gospel. So he's calling them back to the gospel. So one way that we fight against false teaching is abiding in the good news of Christ, the gospel, the message that saved us, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh, and he came to die on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and then in him is found life. So abide in the gospel. Are you say something? What does that look like practically, though? Like, I feel like that's really beautiful Christianese. And yeah. <laughs> How does that look practically? Yeah. Isn't that like the mind piece of abiding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you can already see that it's the same author who wrote those words of, <laughs> about what Jesus said to abide in Jesus. What does that look like practically? I just asked that openly first. What does that look like practically? Yeah, so trusting in God. Yeah. And trusting in Him for what specifically, too? Like, what's the main thing that we want to trust Him for, in a sense? Forgiveness of our sins. Yeah, so I mean, we're trusting Him for everything, but we're also trusting Him for salvation, right? Mm-hmm. That He's the only way. So even practically, uh, in our sin, remembering that Jesus, because He came in the flesh could die for our sins as a substitute because he himself was like us in, in all regards, right? So because he's like us, he can stand in our place. He can die for us. And then, so in our sin, he, he is our hope. He's the one hope that we have for forgiveness. And, and that's an encouragement for us to keep striving to honor God because we're not striving impossibly to earn our own righteousness, but he's given it to us freely. So now we can strive knowing that he's helping us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that as soon as you stop being in awe of the gospel, that is one way to realize like you are not abiding. As soon as it doesn't, it loses its lust. Like, especially at those of us who are like raised in the church and been walking with the Lord for a long time, like it can be very easy for our life to become religious. And we're no longer just in awe of 
wonder of what he's done. And so, yeah, abiding in him stops being abiding in him. It just starts this, like, monotonous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think part of what he's saying here is that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, right? It's not just for new believers, but it's for the mature believers as well. It's for everybody. We still c- continue to return to this gospel. When we sin, we still come back to Jesus and find hope and forgiveness and what he's done for us. I think also practically what he's saying is don't run after false teaching. Don't ra- run after the new teaching. He says, remember what you heard from the beginning? So he's saying, remember the things that you heard from the beginning. So this message of salvation that you've heard, stay with it. Don't go to some new teaching. Be on guard if it's new. Yeah, Joseph. I think the practical way of doing that, I know that for myself, that when I drift from God and when I'm not abiding in Him, usually the common thread there is that I haven't been reading my word on a regular basis. So staying in the truth I think it's the easiest way to know that you're abiding in the Lord and that you're being on guard against false teaching is because you're constantly immersing yourself in what's true. Yeah. I think actually reading scripture versus like talk to other Christians, they don't read their Bible, mm-hmm. so they're, all, they're not really knowing the truth. Yeah. I think it's a step forward even from reading is like meditating on the Word too. Yeah. Sometimes for me it's easy just to read it and you go on your day and you start work. Yeah, that's really good. And I think that's maybe perhaps why John wrote that little poetic section in last week's passage. Remember that you've your sins have been forgiven. Reminding him that their sins have been forgiven. And we should just be on guard to to watch ourselves just because that we currently believe that Jesus is a Christ. I'm not saying we're gonna fall away, but we should be on guard. Don't be prideful and think, Oh, I never believe that Jesus is not God. Or I would never believe that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. It's true that God will guard us till the end. That's true. And we can have confidence that he will guard us. But we should not become prideful and think, well, I would never fall away. Let's be very on guard against new teaching. There's this thing, you know, if it's true, it ain't new. You know, that's, <laughs> that's true, right? Um, and I think there's, there can be a temptation to, to want the newest thing when it comes to teaching. Like, we're often that way about a lot of things, like whether it's technology or something like that. Let's be on guard against teaching that's new and says, oh, I have this new word from God. No. If you hear that, run away from it. So one of the ways that we fight against false teaching here is to hold to the message of the gospel. It's for all believers. And what does he say in verse 25? Yeah, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So those who are Christians, who have put their faith in Christ, their promise is eternal life. And namely, like like Christian said, it's Jesus. You get him forever. You get to be with him forever. Danny Aiken says this, the reference, to eternal, the reference to eternal life is both that of the future promise of eternal life with the Father and the Son, and the present experience of abiding in God, the Father and in Jesus Christ. So it's the the promise of a future heaven being with him forever, but it's also this abiding with him right now. We have eternal life right now. Our eternity, in a sense, begins when we become a Christian. We're already walking with him. And it's also just a reminder, for those who are not Christians, their promise is eternal death. They do not have um, eternal life. And also, just a small note, when we think about 
This should be like a sweet reminder that we have a promise of eternal life. So when we see promises in the Bible, we should hold on to them. We should memorize them, uh, meditate on them. And also just remember who's giving the promise when it says, and this is the promise that he made to us. Who's the he? God. God. And what do we know about God from the rest of scripture? What do we know about his character? faithful yeah he keeps his promises he's faithful so when god tells us that we have eternal life that means we really do we really have eternal life we really have life in christ we really will live with him forever so remember who's giving the promise too because then it takes a whole new meaning it's like when jesus says follow me remember who he's saying to follow Follow the God of the universe who created all things. Follow Jesus, the one who is our salvation. In John 8, 51, he says, Truly, truly, this is Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus promises for those who are walking in obedience, they will never see death. True Christians will never see death. All right. So we have like five minutes. We'll look at the last section, verses 26 through 27. We've already talked about some of these themes, but verse 26 and 27. Can someone read those verses? I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So verse 26 again. It says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So be aware of false teaching. So, yes, he's affirming them. You are Christians. You have been anointed. You do have knowledge. But he's also warning them, be on guard against false teaching. There are people out there who are trying to deceive. Some of these false teachers know what they're doing, that they're trying to deceive others. Some are very aware of that. There are others who do not even realize that's what they're doing because they themselves have been deceived. And remember that Satan knows what he's doing. He's the one who's behind us. He's crafty. Sometimes it's super obvious that it's false teaching. Sometimes it's a lot trickier to, to realize that it is false teaching. It'll sound good. It'll sound true. And I think part of what's going on here is these false teachers have left and it's confusing to these believers. And he's writing to remind them of what's true and to warn them against false teachers. So what, are, what would be some examples of false teaching today that we should be aware of, be on guard against? God wants you happy and healthy and healthy. Yeah, that's a really big one. Yeah, what would that be? Okay. Yeah. So, if you didn't hear what she said, she said the gospel of inclusion. That some people are teaching the gospel of inclusion that Jesus himself was gay, and that um, you can be a gay and be, be gay and be a Christian. So that's obviously contrary to what the New Testament teaches. So yeah, be on guard against that. That's helpful. I didn't even realize that. And then, like you mentioned, the health and wealth gospel. This, if you have enough faith then all these good things will come to you. It's common in other countries. It's also common here. Um, there are the, a lot of the popular books that would call themselves Christians today are teaching this 
If you just have enough faith, if you believe in God, then all these wonderful things will happen to you. So be on guard against that. Any other false teaching that it's very relevant right now? I think there's a, there's a false teaching that's probably related to both of those, but it's the one where I mean, it, they'll use the term God and maybe even Jesus, but what they're really appealing to is um, self as God. Um, sort of listening to your own internal yeah great way to put it yeah just uh the internal compass whatever that is it's right and if you do, if you listen to it you will you know be happy etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's great i think that's very common right now is you are your own god you get to decide what's true your own truth right yeah that's very Even, common this isn't necessarily like it's kind of a specific teaching, but it's also almost just an approach that's very easy to fall into, um, is the legalistic, everything is, like, God wants you to do this and this and this and this and this, and it becomes a list of do's and don'ts, and I have to act like this and think like this, and it's suddenly you're back to earning your own salvation instead of trusting the Lord for grace. Yeah, that's super common. It can be very subtle. That's why the book of Galatians exists, right? To warn us against that. I think a lot of times you can just... Um, I've become more aware of this through the pastoral internship. When I sit in on member interviews, I get to take notes for the elders and so that they don't have to do that. And I get to hear about how people have been saved, which is really great. I get to hear about um, all these different stories. But it's also just amazing that a lot of people, like right now, maybe even you in this room have come from a background where... Something like that is taught, where it's this works-based salvation. That you do these things to be a Christian. It's Jesus, like Garrett will say, Jesus plus something else. That's very common. It can be very subtle if we're not careful and we're not on guard. Yeah, that's super relevant. We should be on guard against that. All right. Um, I was going to ask the question, how do we make sure that we're not deceived? But I think we've already talked about that. Partly, partially is because we... Are we abiding in the gospel? That's how we make sure we're not deceived. But also, some of you guys already said, we read the word. We meditate on the truth. So part of how you know what's false is by meditating on the truth, not meditating on the false things. So when um, before we moved here, I was working at um, a credit union. So I was a bank teller. Um, and they don't teach you about the different um, dollar bills that are like fake and real. Like, you've probably heard this often. Um, it's a helpful illustration, though, that... The way that I learned what money was real and what was fake was from spending time counting money and you know just counting it over and over and over. And it was just amazing. After like a month, it's like I can already just feel the difference. Like I don't even have to look at it. I can feel what feels fake on a dollar bill. Or it's like just very, like you can just be, I can count really fast and it's like you can notice that doesn't look right. So you stop and look at it and you're like, that doesn't look right. It just, it doesn't take long after you're constantly counting dollar bills. It's like, that's not real. So part of what we do is just by handling the truth stuff, right? Meditating on what's true. That's how we know what's false. Mark, one, one thing real quick. Uh, you, you mentioned the church, local church. I think a big aspect of it is also like we all can't see everything. And so John writes this to the church. And then even just looking at our membership covenant, just one section, we will encourage, admonish, and exhibit watchfulness over one another with wisdom and humility and the power of the Spirit. So just the the keys of, of the of the kingdom that have been given to the church to watch one another, to help one another to the end so that we are not deceived by those who bring That's super helpful, yeah. 
That's part of why we exist in a community, is so we can help one another, guard each other, warn one another. That's great. All right. Um, I'll mention it. Let's talk about verse 27 because it can be confusing. Um, it says, but the anointing that you received, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just that his, as it has taught you, abide in him. So when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, he's not meaning you don't need teachers. It doesn't mean I shouldn't be up here right now teaching in the book of First John. One way we know that is because the rest of the New Testament is clearly promoting teaching, right? They're promoting pastors, right? Um, another way we know that is because John wrote this book, and he's encouraging them, and he's teaching them. So that's, he's not saying you don't need teachers. I think he's warning, you don't need some teachers who have this new revelation from God. Yeah, you don't need this, like, you don't, if there's teachers, like I said a second ago, if there's teachers who say, um, I have this special word from God that you need to hear. You run the other direction because that is false doctrine. This, uh, that's, I think, what he's referring to right here. And he's like, he's reminding them they have the Holy Spirit. They should be able to see what is true and what is false. The Holy Spirit will help you. But we also need each other, the church, to help us in that. And then at the end, he says to abide in Christ. So he's just reminding them to abide in Christ. So abide in Christ, like we've talked about what that looks like practically, remembering the gospel, walking in truth, spend time with other believers, meditate on what's true. Our two guides in this life are the Holy Spirit that is in us and God's word. And that's what should be our guides for what is true and what is false. So right before we close, any questions, any comments, any applications before I pray? All right, just a final application, maybe, just a reminder. Um, Cody brought up the, the local church. Let's pray for our local church. By God's grace, we have good teaching. We don't have false doctrine. But that doesn't mean it's guaranteed that it'll stay that way. A lot of churches are doing well and then later die out because of false teaching. Let's pray that our church continues to have good and sound teaching. And pray for other churches. Pray that they would have good and sound teaching. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Pray that you help us to abide in that good news, that we would think about it, that we would meditate on it, that it would continue to awe us and give us joy. Help us to treasure Jesus. When our hearts are cold towards you, would you melt that coldness? Take away the hardness of heart in us and help us to see the gospel with fresh eyes again, that we would see it as sweet and precious. Help us to abide in Christ. Please guard all of us in this room from false teaching. Help us to see what is true and what is false and to love what is true and to hate what is false. Please guard our church from false teaching and help us to remain um, teaching good and sound doctrine. Pray for other churches in this area too, Father, that they would remain in the truth, that they would not turn to false doctrine. And those that are, are promoting false doctrine, the other churches that are, Father, I pray that you would um, just either tear those churches down or bring up new ones to replace them. Help people to be changed by your word and that good teaching would come forth. So please help all of us now as we go on to worship and as we go on throughout the week. Help us to be on guard against false teaching to love you more. In the name I pray, amen.